Nowhere does God say he, abs he abhors me. He loves me. He loves me in spite of me. I mean, how did, see, it, the message got flipped around by many well-meaning people over the years. And they, 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 I believe they've done great damage to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I really do. Right. Welcome, everybody, to the Men of True Worth podcast. Uh, today, joining me, I'm really excited for today's guest. We have here Pastor Al Stewart. Uh, Pastor Al, thank you for joining me yeah, today. It's good, good to be with you, uh, Mike. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank yeah. you. And um, which church are you a pastor of, Al? So I pastor Greater Grace Chapel right here in Holly Hill. Our building is, uh, I can walk there from here. It's not very far, so... Um, we just uh, got a new building. That's a whole incredible story that I was sharing with you before. And um, it's a, a, it's actually the oldest church in Holly Hill. It's 115 years old, the building. First church ever in Holly Hill. And uh, they closed about uh, three months ago. And, and, through a, and I don't use the word miracle lightly, but through a mir miraculous situation, we were able to acquire the property. It's a beautiful campus. Well, that's incredible. And... Um we're, I do want to get into that story as well. And then just to further introduce you as well, you've written 14 books, is that right? 13 or, or four, yes. It's somewhere, yeah, about 13, I think. And I've written a couple while I've helped a couple others write books. That's part of what I do with Po'Boy Publishing is I help others publish. And, and so I've been able to do that. I have a book um, by a cop who was an atheist at one time. It's called Arrested by God, Put Your Hands Up. <laughs> and uh, he used to produce my TV program back in Danbury, Connecticut. And uh, I was able to help him with his memoir. So I, I do that as well. Well, that's that's incredible. Uh, how do you get the time to write so many books? Uh, well, it's, it's Joe Rissinger, really. Pastor Joe came to me, and believe it or not, um, I didn't start writing until about 2015. And it was Joe who came in, and uh, just once... I, but I'm, it, like, I, when I throw myself into something, I'm kind of like that. And, of course, I have my wife's blessing. She's okay and lets me go in there at night, and I'll do a lot of, lot of, a lot of the writing of these books happen between, like, 11 at night and 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning. Um, but that's just the way I am. I'm pretty prolific when I get going on something. Sermons, I mean, I have probably 100 sermons I've never preached yet. I mean, I just have all, I just write. It just, that always came naturally. I write music. I've recorded songs as well, played in a band, a drummer. Um, and so it's the same thing. I, have, I probably have a couple dozen songs I've never recorded yet. So it just comes naturally, that writing and stuff for me. That's amazing. Well, I want to... So there, I've got a few of your books here, not all of them. Um, we've got Hyper-Calvinism Revisited, uh, Arme Wesleyan Arminian Theology Revisited, mm -hmm. um, Revisiting the Eternal Soul Doctrine. Yes. I'm excited to read that one. Yep. And Divine Appointments Revisited. Yeah. No, I kind of use the Revisited as a, that's kind of my niche, I guess you'd say. <laughs> yeah. That's the branding. Yeah. So that's super cool. Now, the you mentioned, so Divine Appointments, yes. you mentioned it was like a miraculous thing how you came to yeah. uh, come into this church here. Uh, yes. Do you want to tell a little bit about that story? Yeah, yeah. Um, I so I, I I've written a new chapter. It's not in that copy. It's in the new copies that are coming out now. I'm just getting. I have some being delivered this week, but um, just over the course of my life, I have had 
incredible encounters um, with people because I am very intentional. When I get up in the morning, usually in the shower, I will stop and I will go put my hand on my heart and I'll say, okay, Lord, um, you know, I know I'm doing a podcast with Mike today. This, I did this this morning and I know this is going on, whatever, but you do what you want to do. I'm listening. And, and I dare anybody, any of your listeners out there to do that. And I'm going to tell you that if you do, you're going to hear God, like things are going to happen. And like, for instance, on my way over here, if, 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 if God directed me down Ridgewood Avenue, I would call you and say, hey, man, I'm going to be late. You know, I, I got to do this. And one of the things that happened here was that on the very same day that our church lost its meeting place in South Daytona back in July, the church here closed for various reasons. Um, and, and I was able to hook up with the chair of the trustees. And we just kind of took a liking to each other right away. And that's a whole nother story. Um, he turned out to be the brother of a gentleman who has lived next to my dad for 20 years. And him and his wife would kind of help take care of my dad. Never knew that this guy was his brother. That came out at the end of this whole thing. That's a whole nother story. So what happened was he kept asking me, look, name a price. It's an, it was an $800,000 property. It was valued at $798,000. I think our church had $1,500 in the bank. I'm like, we don't have no money. You keep asking me to, he said, I need a price. I, we can't, they're not going to give the building away, even though it's 501c3 and they could. Um, as long as, you know, the money, if they sell it, you always have to, you know, distribute the money to another 501c3. That's the law. So that you don't really lose anything if you give it away in that sense. But they needed to get something. So he had asked me again near the end when it was becoming clear that another entity was looking at it, not a church. They were going to make it like a museum for the town or whatever. And I think the city was interested in it. And so what happened is in in this last conversation with him, I was like, well, and all of a sudden the figure 250,000 came to my mind. I said, 250,000 by faith. He goes, okay, I think we could do that. And I'm like, he just lowered the price of half a million dollars. Like, this might happen. And I, what I'm about to tell you is exactly what happened. I mean, this is incredible. People out there are probably going to go, come on. There's no come on. What happened was, like two days later, I got a phone call from a friend I had not seen in 46 years. We were childhood friends. We would hang out. We'd always play against each other. We'd play football, basketball, baseball. In fact, baseball was the one sport we played together. When I had a Father Shea team, he played with us. And other than that, we were always playing against each other. And we always liked each other, had a respect. And I had heard many years ago that he came to the Lord. He had heard that I did. And he tried to contact me a few times. But this time, he knew he had to get me. And so he wanted to meet. And I couldn't meet the first time. And I shudder to think I would have blown him off again. Because now this sale, the building, is imminent. And uh, I went down to Melbourne to meet him. And we got talking about uh, growing up in Waterbury, Connecticut, how half the people we know are no longer alive. We also got talking about the fact that we know that if it wasn't for Christ, you know, both of us acknowledge this, that the two of us would either be dead, in jail, or on the street somewhere. I mean, that, that's why I can't do enough for the Lord. He did everything for me, and he'll do everything for those who are watching in today, man. So... Um, after that, he said, okay, Stu, that was my nickname, my last name, Stuart. 
And he said, Stu, uh, I need to tell you something. I go, sure. He goes, God woke me up three weeks ago and told me to get a hold of you. And he was able to find me through Amazon, my author's page. That's how he got my number and everything. Someone had told him, um, a mutual friend had told him, oh, yeah, he's writing books. I don't know how to get a hold of him, but he's writing books. And that's how he found me. And I'm like, so God told you to call me. He goes, yeah. I go, well, why would he do that? He said, because you have a financial need and I'm here to meet it. And then he proceeds to tell me that he's a multimillionaire, which he is. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I can't believe my ears. I'm like, I'm like almost in tears now. And he looks at me and he's now he's pushing me because I, I couldn't even talk. He's like, Stu, what's the need? I said, I'm good. <laughs> but we need 250000 We need a quarter of a million dollars to buy a church. And I uh, kid you not, he just put his hand on my shoulders. You know, he's about six foot four. He's a big guy. Long beard now. White hair. Puts his hand on my shoulders and he goes, I'll wire it to you. And he wired $250,000 and we bought the church. <laughs> now, I should also mention three of my people, two deacons and, and the gentleman who was doing worship for us, all went to the building separate of each other and all called me separate of each other and all said the same thing. They all said that they heard God say, We're, he's going to give us the building for nothing. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm like... And he did I'm, just yeah, that. He, and that's exactly what he did. It's it's So needless to say, there's a chapter 23 <laughs> in the New Divine Appointments. And I call it the mother of all divine appointments. And I have had some... I have had life-saving divine appointments where people's lives were on the line. But this was like truly the most incredible. What does that mean to you? Or what is that, what's that feeling to you? Or what is, how do you know when God's speaking to you? Uh, everybody you know that, wants to know yeah. that. Well, that, okay, so that, and that's a great, thank you. That's a great question. Um, everyone is different. And, and what I want to say is, um, it, it's sort of like I got asked when I was up at Liberty University, I was a pastoral leadership pastor, I got asked to come in and teach a class on how to write a sermon. And you, you'll see the parallel. And I told the professor, I'm like, come on, are you kidding me? How many, how many pastors did you ask? And he smiled. He said, 10. I go, and he goes, that's, oh, that's why I did it, because he got 10 different ways to do it. So the way God speaks to me probably will not be the way he speaks to somebody else. But the Bible says he speaks in a still small voice, and many interpret that as the word, and that is true. But I, as you remember today from the pastor's meeting, I've had three instances in my life where God like spoke audibly. And then if you remember one guy in the group today, Daniel said he didn't hear it audibly, but he spoke in his spirit. And and I just, it you know, there's no set formula. I, I wish I could sit here and say, this is how it's done. It's not. He just speaks. He just, you know, I walked into a Starbucks a couple years ago. A, a young lady was sitting down, and I heard, she's lonely. She needs me. Go talk to her. I sat with her. Ten minutes later, uh, in the middle of Starbucks, I'm praying with this. This was like a week before Christmas. Pray with her to receive the Lord, and she became a part of our church for a year before she moved back to New Jersey. Those kind of things. I just, it, it, to me, it isn't how he's going to speak to you. You'll know that. Here's the key. Will you be obedient? That's the key. Will you step out? I have a, a chapter called Walking the Plank because the first time that happens to you, it's like walking the plank, man. You are totally out there. I remember the very first divine appointment I had was utterly frightening. But once it happened, the, uh, it's been 
off to the races since. And I hope that makes sense. So there's no set formula. It's he will speak. You will hear it. The question is, that's not, I'm not even worried about that. Most people won't act on it. That's the problem. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, uh, and one of the reasons I ask is because I get to ask that question from time to time. And I really, it's a really difficult question to answer for me because I can't really explain how, how I know when God's yeah. speaking to me. The God of the universe, last time I checked, he's able to talk to us. See, that's it. There's no problem <laughs> yeah. there. He's brought, God may not own a radio station, but, you know, just like you're going to be broadcasting this, he's broadcasting 24-7. Yeah. But, but the thing is this. Today he might be on 95.7. Tomorrow he might be on 104.5. Are you tuned into his frequency? It's not always the same. And that's where it gets difficult. And that's where you have to trust. But what will happen, I could say this, after a while, you will develop that rapport with him where you'll kind of, you could filter it out. Like I pretty much, I, I pretty much know when it's him. I mean, for me, it's really easy now. Yeah, that it makes sense to me. Uh, thank you for sharing about yeah. that. Good uh, question, by the way. Now, as you go through... Um, as you've been pastoring for many years now. Um, how long have you been pastoring, by the way? So I've been pastoring, uh, my original ordination um, back in uh, like 1989 uh, was, was more for like an evangelist, you know, 88, thereabouts. Um, and then what happened was I was very successful, but I couldn't let the people go. And supposedly, you know, close friends have said to me, you are a rare breed, You're that pastor evangelist. So I don't know how much is, if it's 60, 40, 40, 60. Um, but, you know, I've, I've been pastoring off and on for a long, over 30 years. It's been a long time. Uh, yeah, Started that, four churches, yeah. So in all of that experience, um, various churches, various ministry areas, and various uh, places that you've visited mm -hmm. and things like that, um, what this is a question I like to ask and get a perspective on. Where do you feel like the church as a whole in general has missed the mark? Yeah. Good question. <laughs> you ask good questions, uh, Mike. Um, and, and they're hard questions, and you should ask those and, because we need to know um, those things and we need to know why. Um, and not that I have all the answers, I don't far from it. But I'll say this, uh, I, th I think we've missed it in a couple areas. Um, one is, I think that, you know, the Bible says as the head goes the tail. So I think it, we kind of have to come back to, to the leadership. And I think there's been a problem with the leadership. You know, getting, we were talking off camera just before we came on about how difficult it is to get pastors together. I mean, it is, it is like pulling teeth. That ought not to be. John 17 wasn't written, you know, for solitary fellowship. You know, if you think about, we call Matthew 6 the Lord's Prayer. I would argue Matthew 6 is the model prayer. It's how to pray. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Jesus spoke almost every word. And in there he said that we may be one, even as, you know, the Father, Son, and the Spirit are one. And the only way that's going to happen is if we cross denominational lines, if we cross, you know, all these idiosyncrasies we have. And, and a good, healthy pastor's group is where 
these pastors come in and check those idiosyncrasies at the door and come in and know Christ and him crucified, nothing else, and we go from there. Um, so I think, you know, the leadership has missed many pastors. You know, I've actually had pastors say things to me over the years like, where's the Bible say pastors have to get together? Like, like, are you serious? Like, you really mean that? Like, it's scary, scary to hear pastors say that. So I, I've got to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to hit the rank and file member when the pastors are unwilling to get together. Um, however, the good news is whenever persecution hit, you better believe they got together. Hmm. And, and persecution, I hate to say it, but persecution is always the answer for the church. And the church has, you know, grown lazy. So where else I think we've missed it is like in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have Moses giving those three discourses out on the, uh, you know, the plains of Moab. And in the last one, he says, beware lest you forget when your houses are full, when your barns are full, when you have everything to eat, when you're comfortable, when you got money in the bank. You, you mm -hmm. kind of know what I'm saying. When you got a nice house, beware lest you forget the Lord your God whose hand brought you out of slavery. That, I think that's where, the, in my humble opinion, that's where the church in general is at today. We've gotten... We've gotten lazy. I think the number one problem in the church, honestly, is apathy. If you were to ask me, I'd tell you apathy. So if we if we kind of come to this, uh, I love that answer and how you handled that question. Now, as, as we come to that, you know, the, the, um, the idea of pastors getting together. So you feel like it's important to have some some community Crucial. there within the pastors Crucially and the leadership important. of various churches. Crucially important. And then so with that being a high importance and maybe I'm, I'm kind of curious, where do you feel like is, is that more prevalent? Is it more prevalent in the denominations where they're only just only dealing with people in their denomination? And so the pastors are only talking and yeah. hearing from their denomination? Or is it more or some might argue that it's more prevalent in the non-denominational, kind of the structure where a pastor is just kind of like, well, I'm just, I don't like how they're doing it, so I'm just going to go plant my own church, right. and then they don't answer to anybody. They're, they don't have a, like, they don't have anybody they have to, to adhere to their right. guidelines, and so they could just go off like lone wolf and not have anybody. Around. Yeah, it, which is why you have to have healthy bylaws when you're non-denominational. You know, at Greater Grace Chapel. Um, my elders could actually remove me. In other words, I submit myself because we're non-denominational, because the buck has to stop somewhere, lest I go off and do the lone wolf thing. And that is a problem. That's a legit thing you're saying. But I think those in the denomination, um, they have it better. Uh, not, that, not that doctrinally they do, far from it. But, you know, they're, they're comfortable. It makes them comfortable. Hey, I see these guys all over from every year, you know. But the truth is, we're missing so much. I mean, one of the beautiful things is when we're together, running, you know, over these different denominations, we get all these different flavors. I mean, w what tastes better, vanilla or vanilla mixed in with chocolate, pistachio? I mean, no, there's no doubt about it. I want the different, that's why Baskins <laughs> have 31 flavors or whatever. You know, so the body of Christ has all these flavors, and we're missing all those others. And... Um, so, you know, yeah, the denominational people certainly have more fellowship together, but that's not unity. 
far from it. It's when we cross, when you have a, a place where pastors are getting together across the, the, the spectrum, you know, that's, that's when you have unity. This, this is really cool. So the, the other thing you brought up is that comfort level. Um, they, we've become a culture where, um, and even a society where it's like kind of, it's kind of cool or edgy even to be, you know, uh, a Christian even like we don't have to deal with a lot of persecution here in America. And, uh, this came up before the topic. So it's, it's cool that you brought it up. What can the church do in general to, to kind of, um, I don't know what the right word for it is. Maybe wake people up or or show people that like we, we need to have some sort of fire or is that what you're saying at all? Well, I, I think what's happening now I look, I you know, as much as I do not want our society to go down the dumper, which it is, it's a fact. And I think it's gonna get worse. I, I wish I could sit here and say it's gonna get better. Uh, history doesn't teach us that. It's gonna get it's gonna get tougher. If you read Genesis 1 through 11, we're not there yet. I mean, there's no cities where you can't find 50 righteous people. It makes you wonder, will, will it come to that? You know, will it go up? Because that's certainly when it came to that in Genesis, God said, that's it. It's time to, you know, it's a wind-up. You know, we start over. And uh, I think that the positive, uh, uh, I think the persecution, as much as I don't want it and don't welcome it, I think it's the best thing because what's going to happen is as as the elevator doors start closing, as the elevator starts closing us in, it's going to become very clear who's a believer and who's not a believer. I mean, there 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 will come a time, I believe, in America. It could still be a while yet. You know, I'm not you know I'm not on this you know bandwagon of you know we're we're scooting out of here in a, a year. So it's I think it could be a while yet, but as it gets closer, people have to get real. They're going to have to hunker in and get serious. Like the Thessalonians, you know, when Paul wrote to them and told them that, you know, the Lord's coming was imminent, you know, 1 Thessalonians 4, so much so that they stopped working and they stopped and he had to write another book to them and say, no, I've told you these things. Go back to work, you know. Like, we need to be doing what we're supposed to be doing and not stop everything. People get so enamored with, you know, when the Lord's coming back. Don't worry about that. Uh, my return to God might be tonight. That's when I might get get called to him. So what am I doing? And, um, and if Christians would just focus on that, what they're supposed to do, that's the problem. The problem is we're not focused on what we're supposed to do. We get focused on eschatology or we get focused even on theology. That can take us over. Or this, this, this. I mean, it's good to talk about these things. I love coming on talking about them, this, that. But I don't live for those things. I live to tell others about Jesus. Nothing supplants that. If something supplants that, then I'm off point and I got a problem. So I, I welcome this tightening of the strings. It's happening in Canada. Canada's ahead of us. And Christians are having to get more real in Canada and some of these other countries, and it's coming to America. So you think persecution is a good thing, or are you kind of like... I think history proves it. I think history, you know, history, just look at church history. The Christian church shined the brightest in the midst of horrendous... When the plagues came, it was the Christians who went out and got those children that everybody abandoned and loved them. 
at the risk of their own lives. When the Christians walked out and the animals devoured them, I, this, as crazy as it sounds, that was their most glorious moment, man. When they stood firm and said, you know, like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, King, just to let you know, you're going to throw us in this fire, but whether it consumes us or not, we're not going to bow down to your... And that's what those Christians did, and they stood firm. And they'll have a great place in the kingdom of heaven. And so it's in those moments that we get to shine the brightest when, you know, when things really, when the rubber meets the road. And so, yeah, I do welcome that, absolutely. This is, uh, this is interesting. So I, I think one of the questions, I understand what you're saying, I really do. Um, but I think one of the questions would be, like, say, somebody who's, who's going through it really in a lot of pain. Um, you know, what, what can be the message to that person? So uh, how, can, how, can, how can you or how do you navigate that? Like, well, you know, like we're, we're going to go through these things, and it's a good thing because it's strengthening you. It's, it's strengthening your bond with Christ or your trust in him. Um, if that's what you're saying, then how can you navigate that conversation when somebody's like in a lot of pain going through something very tragic in their life or something like that? Yeah, so, so things like that in your life are going to do one of two things. They're either going to pull you towards God or they're going to pull you away. And we know that James says that when you're going through those things, God's doing something. Now, there's a scripture in Romans 8, 28, and it's, it's quoted like this. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord or call according to his purpose. I would challenge anybody to read the Greek. The Greek structure is God is working in all things for the good. And I share that with people because let's, let's take a woman who just lost their son. I think the worst thing I can look at her and say is all things work to the good for God. You know, almost as though God like wanted that to happen. He, he didn't say that. What he said is he'll use that for the good. And so I try to encourage people that, look, when, when these things happen, I tell them, listen, I want you to know Jesus wasn't sleeping in the boat when this happened. Like, God's sovereign. Like, I wouldn't want my doctor to go, oops, during an operation. Like, he was there. He's always there. And he'll, I don't know how, but I try to tell people, don't judge this right now. Give it some time, because somewhere over here, it's going to make sense. I've lived long enough in the Lord, 43 years, to see horrid things that happened, only to look at them 10 to 20 years later and go, I get it. But it took a long time to be able to go make sense of that. And so I try to get people to see the big view. The other thing I try to get people to do is, is to look at Matthew 6.33. I, I, Matthew 6.33, to me, is one of the most important passages in the New Testament. And Jesus said, make first priority the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that you need. Uh, you're in need right now. You've gone through this. That, but, but God promises. His reputation is actually on the line there. He actually says, if you make first priority my kingdom and the th my things first, I'm going to take care of you in every other way, including this circumstance. But, but the problem is people, you know, they're, they're, they're running every which way. They're, they're just doing everything but what they should do so often.
even when these things happen. You know, uh, somebody's in a difficult situation, like you said. For instance, I, had, I was talking to a guy. He goes, Al, listen, I, I don't have time for this right now. I got to get a job first. I'm like, no, you got it backwards. Seek Christ and you'll get that job. Like, people just have these things backwards, and you know as well as I do. Many of the principles of the kingdom are backwards to us. You give and you get. You want leadership, the way up is down, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the the question, the the big question that we have to uh, get whenever we, we talk about that, seek first the kingdom of God, what does that, what does that mean on a practical level? It means, I believe, number one, it means fellowship. It means the least we could do, our least reasonable form of service, as the Bible says, is to get out, get ourselves out of bed and give the Lord a couple weeks or a couple, a couple hours a week and come in fellowship, you know, church, you know, attending a church somewhere. I, I, like, I, lo I love that Billy Graham would always say, attend a church this week. You know, I love that. I believe in that. Like, that's, I believe God... I believe when we take little steps, God honors those little steps. And the, the, the littlest step we could take is just at least saying, okay, I'm going to go to church. And then from there, reading your Bible. You know, that's what it looks like. You start reading the Bible, faith comes by hearing, hearing by not Al's sermons or Mike's sermons or anybody else, or by Mike's podcast. It's by the Word of God. So you, now you're you're reading the Word of God. You know, then it, then it's fellowship. It's becoming part of a life group, a prayer meeting. You know, and it, it just begins to permeate your life, and and basically you're transformed in time, and and that's what the hope is. But people are into so many other things. You know, like I, I saw somebody the other day on Facebook walk. See this beach here. I love the beach. I'm sure you do. I'm sure your wife does. My wife does. Um, you know, even though I'm not a big beach person, it is beautiful to walk the beach. And someone was like, uh, posted, uh, man, this is great. I'm at church today. I'm like, honey, that might be your happy place, but that ain't church. You know, and so we, we run off into all these other things other than what, what God, like, really commands us to do. Hebrews 10.26 says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves as is the habit of some. Last time I checked, God doesn't have any 007s in the kingdom. Hmm. You know? <laughs> no secret agents for Jesus. Um, I know we've got going here for a little bit. If it's all right, I'm going to shift it for a minute. Sure. I, I'm curious, what is your favorite topic, or what is your favorite thing, like if you're, you're getting ready for a sermon and you're about to preach or teach us certain series or something which the one that like gets you going like this is exciting like i can't wait to reveal this or or help people along like what what's that kind of what's that topic for you um pro probably something relating to outreach you know sharing the gospel um most of my messages i i'm gonna bring some somehow some way into the proper exegesis, hermeneutic context, you know, outreach, because I think that's crucial. And that, and, and because, as we talked about earlier, it's most needed today. So I want people to understand their duty before God. And I, I use the word duty, but, you know, their obligation before God is to share what you have with others. And that's, you know, we have a young lady in our church who's bringing people every week. She's bringing other people. I went up to her Sunday and said, I, you need to know I admire what you're doing. You, you get it, don't you? 
Yeah, I get it. So it, it's got usually something to do with outreach. Um, and I, I try to keep my messages pretty simple. You know, life group, like we have our life group tonight, we'll dig deeper there. Life group and stuff, Bible studies are different. Sunday morning, I try to just, you know, give somebody a, just a, 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 a good word, a strong word. But usually it, it, it's related around in some way, shape, or form. I always come back to reaching out to others. That's Evangelism is my favorite subject, and that's really what you're asking. Yeah, well, I was going to ask that. Like, it, Is that what you call like the, the evangelism? Like, If we're talking about the fivefold ministries, if we right. go down that road, um, then that would be evangelism. Yes. Um, I think you've told me before that, that you're kind of in between all of those well, I, I'm just, you know, I look, I've started four churches, so I don't use the word apostle. I would never do that. Not that it isn't a biblical, um, uh, you know, one of the five ministry gifts. But, you know, J John Calvin, part of the reason we don't use that is John Calvin, way back when, had no use for apostles and prophets. And, and they kind of got shrugged off to the side, to be very honest with you. And prophets had their time. I, you know, Hebrews 1, 2 says, long ago God spoke, you know, in former times through the patriarchs and the prophets, but in these last days it's spoken through the son. So the prophet is very different today than it was then. So that, I, I can understand that influencing him. But we kind of threw out the apostolic. So I, I've done apostolic work. I've, you know, this is the fourth church that I've been able to, you know, be a part of starting um, evangelism, certainly an evangelist, and also pastor. I mean, I love, I, you know, I'm just as happy with a nine-year-old as I am with a 90-year-old. doesn't matter to me. I enjoy, I love people. I, you know, people are fascinating to me and I, I love people. I really do. So there came some sort of time with, uh, you alluded to something about uh, John Calvin yes. and where almost like, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm going to maybe talk out of some ignorance here, but it sounds like what you're saying is at some point they threw out the baby with the bathwater in a sense of like, this is different. So they just like, we're not going to agree with any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, now, I don't, I don't have a lot of knowledge of Calvinism in Arminianism. Um, so, um, and you've written books on them. So, yes. It's natural that we might go there with the conversation, if that's all right with you. Yeah, absolutely. So what is the main idea? What, what is Calvinism? Okay. So Calvinism, um, John Calvin wrote, a, wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and there's a lot of great stuff in there. I, I don't, you know, the man in many ways was, you know, like most brilliant men of God, he was brilliant and he was flawed. You know, Martin Luther, you know, German, Germany's angry man. You know, here the guy wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it, people could say what they want, but the fact of the matter, it, matter was, he also was an anti-Semite for a long time. Um, Hitler, you know, drew from his writings and used them. You know, and we saw what happened after, you know, with Hitler and the Holocaust and whatnot. Horrible ramifications. So some of these brilliant, brilliant men that God used were also terribly flawed. And I, actually, I kind of like that because John Wesley's really the guy that I admire the most 
as far as a human example. And he was, again, flawed. His wife left him, and he said, I'm not going to call her back, and I won't leave her. I mean, it was like, you know, Wesley had his own problems. Um, so these guys all had their, you know, their things to deal with. But Calvin introduced this idea of, it's really TULIP. It's, a, it's an acronym called TULIP. And it's really based all around predestination. Like, he, he actually made this statement. He said, a drop of rain doesn't fall from the sky without God's decree. Like, one drop. When it rains, just imagine how many droplets fall. Like, one drop didn't fall without his decree. I believe it turns God into big brother. Like, big brother is watching you. And, and that's why I think there's a history, and it's an undeniable history, even going back, even though Luther wasn't a Calvinist, he was prior to Calvin, but the fact is he, he basically, you know, influenced Calvin big time um, and, and had some similar thoughts. There's just been this line of angry people. <laughs> I, I don't know, right up to today. I, you know, I, I mean, I don't. I have no problem naming people if you want me to. What are they angry about? They're, well, it's, it's their view of God that makes them angry. I, I honestly am convinced of that. They have this view of God that God is like not only all-knowing and this and that, and, and they'll say he's all-loving and they'll use the word grace, but the way they use it and the way the Bible uses it are quite different. I mean, think of it this way. So tulip means basically, you know, man is totally depraved. Okay, I mean, that's offensive, but not like incredibly offensive. I believe man is pervasively depraved. I, I like to use the term pervasive depravity, meaning there, you know, like we are, sin has affected us, it's systemic, it's everywhere. But when you look at total depravity, you can walk away pretty, the person can walk away depressed. Like, I, okay, so God just, I'm just no good. Like, I can't do anything. Like Bill Gates, right? Bill Gates is what's called a positive atheist. Meaning he's an atheist, but he's not on this crusade to shoot out religion. Yet he he's given tons of money to faith-based organizations. Like he's done good stuff. I mean, like, so you know, I like this pervasive depravity versus total depravity because it just knocks us down to this place where, like, you know, we're nothing. And God didn't make us as nothing. Because we sinned. I don't see anything in Scripture that after we sin that doesn't say we're still in God's image according to his likeness. It's distorted now. That's the problem. But why is that, why is that such a pervasive thing in Christianity um, where, where there's always that, like, oh, I'm nothing, I'm a worm? Why, why do we have that tendency yeah. to go down that road well, so much? Because we've been influenced. I mean, Jonathan Edwards' sermon. Sinners in a hang of an angry God, like a spot, you know, like we're being dangled. And, and we're, he actually said God abhors us in that. Uh, if I was to write a book, I would write sinners in the hands of a loving God. Nowhere does God say he, ab he abhors me. He loves me. Amen. He loves me in spite of me. I mean, how did, see, it, the message got flipped around by many well-meaning people over the years. And they, 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 I believe they've done great damage to the gospel. Of Jesus Christ, I, I really do. What would you say to them if, if because uh, maybe the argument is like you know, well, our righteousness is as filthy rags, right? Yeah, they love like, to quote that scripture. Know, we're not, you know, we're not worthy of His 
mercy. We're not worthy of the grace. We, you know, and you know, I'm I'm just a sinner right. saved by grace. And right. and like this focus on like you know how is there some sort of idea that if we make ourselves lower or talk about ourselves lower that it makes us more acceptable to him? Uh, well, okay, it? like you quoted Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 6640, our works are like filthy rags to the Lord. So we have that scripture standing here. How about this? So Jesus, when he had his back to the wall against the Pharisees, actually said this. If you don't believe me, believe the works that I do. See, works, works are only filthy rags to the Lord when we're trying to say, that's why you should honor me, God. When we try to say, that's why I should get in. You know, the Kennedy questions in evangelism, right? If you were to die tonight, do you know for sure you go to heaven? Hmm. People, who, people who say yes, 95% of the time will answer this way when I ask the second question. If God was to say to you, why should I let you in? What would you say? And this is what they're going to say. I'm a good person. I'm a good, you know, and you're disqualified. That's when it becomes filthy rags. But, but works in and of themselves, like faith and works, they are intertwined. When you try to pull them apart, this is what my, my first book that I ever wrote was Works Revisited. And it's all about this. Even Jesus pointed to the works he did when his back was against the wall. Um, James said, if you see your brother or sister in need and you say, God bless you, hope everything goes well, and you don't do anything, you did nothing. In fact, James says, can that faith save him? We know the answer to that is no. No hyper-Calvinist would ever answer yes to that question. The answer is no. Like, it's important to do something. We need to be doing things. Here's the thing. It's not what we do. It's why are we doing it that's what we'll be judged for when we stand before the lord like francis schaefer the ash heap christians idea like those works that we did for ourselves or for any other reason than to glorify god are going to be burned up i'm sure i'll have a few of those things i'm sure that i had some self-interest along the way on some things but i'd like to think that 90 percent of what i've done i did for one reason for the gospel of jesus christ for the kingdom of god and those works will stand, and they're important. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's because they have, they have turned the, the sovereign grace movement in the body of Christ basically has turned works into a nasty thing, a dirty thing. And yet, they are very important. They don't save. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For it is by grace through faith that you have been saved, and that, that not of yourselves, or of works, lest any man should boast. Now, what's the backdrop? What's the proper hermeneutic there? It's this. What Paul is saying is in the provision of salvation, he's talking about salvation there. When it comes to the provision of salvation, there's nothing we could do. God provided it. And, and we always talk about this tension between Paul and between James. Well, now enter James, and James... Uh, is it any coincidence that Luther and Calvin, guys like that, they didn't like the book of James because it's all about works. But now what's the proper hermeneutic there? The proper hermeneutic is now you're a believer. What does it look like? What it looks like is this. You're doing works because you believe. Therefore, there is no tension between. I, I actually, I didn't want to sound pretentious, but in my book, Works Revisited, I wrote, 
you know, James, you know, basically, you know, uh, Paul and James resolved. There is no tension. It, people aren't looking at the big picture. They're, they're not looking at the background or the context. And we know that D.A. Carson wrote a book on context. If you don't have a context, you can say anything you want with anything in Scripture. Now, at what level do you start to say... Um, because when we talk about works, it's like, where do we draw the line? Or how do we know at what point are we doing it because we think we have this, like, because we think we have a responsibility as a Christian, we have to do it. Right. Or is it this idea that we, I'm, I'm having a hard time formulating this question. I, but I, I think I know where you're going, and I think I know what you're saying. Go right ahead. So, okay, we are told that in heaven, in the new earth, right, the new Jerusalem, that there will be rewards given out. Uh, we sing in the old rugged cross till at last my trophies I lay down. What are those trophies? Those are clearly the works that we've done, the things that we do. So the, the thing is, do the works, but don't trust the works to get you into mm. salvation. But you do them because he first loved you. I mean, it really is a non-issue. It's like just you, when, when I believe that when like God gets your heart, people talk about finances and money. When God gets your heart, he gets your wallet. When God gets your heart, he gets the works, and you do them. God forbid any of us do them because we're going to get rewards. I mean, it is true. We should know that. I mean, Randy Alcorn's written about that. I mean, it's, it's absolutely the truth. Um, Jesus talked about it. Um, so we should do those things because we're not— people have this idea of heaven. We're going to be—I'm going to see you on one cloud. I'll be in the other, you know— playing the harp, hey, how you doing, Mike? No, we're going to be doing things, and we're going to be entrusted with, with a lot, I think. Um, we're going to be surprised on the other side who's doing what, believe me. And so... Interesting. It, I've never heard that. Oh, yeah, before. absolutely. I, I totally believe that, um, and I believe it's scriptural. Um, the thing is, the thing is you, you, you do them because you love God, and no other reason. It, you know... James again says, I mean, "How could you say you love God if you if you just sit back and you just look?" Can you know th that's like so foreign to Christianity. It's like you. That's why. That's the honestly. That's you talk about pastor being a pastor and and having frustration. Remember, I mentioned apathy earlier. This is it. You you've hit on it. Like the great disconnect, and I don't know the answer. I cannot believe. In, in the average church, how many people go and hear great messages every week and within an hour are back to doing what they were doing? Man, in, in, in the fall of night or in the late summer of 1980, I heard the gospel and I can look you in the eye and tell you, I have never been the same. And I don't understand how that happened to anybody else. You, you talked about that light shining on you today. I guarantee. Uh, Mike wasn't the same guy. You haven't been the same guy since that day, have you? Right. No. Exactly. And so it's difficult for me to understand how how is this massive disconnect out there? But it is. 
And I and I don't have the answer. That's one question I don't have the answer to. That's I wish I did. Well, but I'm um, doing my best to try to <laughs> find it. Well, this is really cool conversation. I like the direction it's going in. Um, I wanted to, as we stay on the topic of as far as Calvinism, yes. um, I think the first thing that comes to mind when somebody thinks of Calvinism is the predestination issue. Yes. So as we talk about that, how do you reconcile these? Um, this. So I've heard R.C. Sproul say, I've heard him say things like, um, you know, when he's quoting the scripture, I was dead in my sins. And dead, like, because, you know, there's that teaching, like, well, you know, like, God goes like 99% of the way to get us, and we do our one little 1% thing, all we got to do is that one little, but if you're dead, you can't do anything. So there's that argument. And then there's, you know, there's, of course, the Paul's teaching in, now I'm going to, is it is it in Romans where he talks a lot about pre you know we were predestined yeah. and things like that? So when we get into it, um, I'm not going to pretend like there's not a a basis. There's not a basis for that belief, right. and so and like you said, these great great men, great teachers yeah. of the Bible believe it. Yeah. So uh, and even like um, one of my favorite teachers, Paul Washer, Paul. Washer, yeah, yeah he, I yeah, I follow believes. him, and you know I I love his teachings, but you know he believes that as well, yes. and so I want to. Where. Okay. Why why are they why are they believing this, okay. and why is it yeah. why is it so prevalent, and and where is this coming from, and what's the answer to okay. that? All right, so um, yes, there are many passages you quote Romans eight. Um, you know, whom he foreknew, he predestined, right? Right. Okay. And what? And so the next question should be, what did he predestine us to? To become conformed to the likeness of his son. Yeah, God wants that for all of us. How did that become salvation? That's a bridge too far that's not there. Oh. So that's a problem. The next problem is um, the gospel, you know, the golden text of the Bible is always recognized as John 3.16. And in John 3.16, it says, whosoever, whosoever. The Greek word is all, like pas. Pas means all. 1 Timothy 2.4 says God who desires all men to be saved. Not this small elect group of hyper-Calvinists or this or whatever. Um, I mean, it's just unreal. And, and the thing is, if I could boil the whole Calvinist argument down, the hyper-Calvinist argument down, because there are Calvinists who say, I'm a three-point or I'm a four-point. And the truth of the matter is, that doesn't hold water. You're, you're really, you're a hyper-Calvinist, so you're, you're nothing. I believe that. Because you, you each because the T is welded to the U, the U is welded to the L, the L is welded to... They're like the Olympic rings. They're all welded together. But the L is really the crux of the whole argument. And this is where I can answer this. L is limited atonement. Well, John Piper believes this. John MacArthur has been teaching this for years. Um, and it's caused a lot of problems. They believe that Jesus Christ did not die for everyone. That's a fact. There's no way around that. They, they believe that the atonement was limited to those who God chose because God would never waste the sacrifice or the blood of Christ on you know unbelievers. Now, they'll say, 
the scope of, you know, his atonement could cover everything because they have to cover their tracks. But at the same time, they will say, you know, they will say that, you know, basically, you know, it was limited. Then think about the Garden of Eden. Um, in predestination, if God preordained everything, you must now believe that God preordained the fall of man. You have to. If God preordained every drop of rain, he certainly, he certainly preordained the fall of man. So now I want to ask you a question, Mike. I'm going to throw it back at you. If God preordained the fall of man, who is the author of sin? Who would have to be the author of sin? Yeah, that would be God. Yeah, and that's impossible. And now here's your answer. Your answer is 1 Peter 1 and 2. <laughs> and I'm so thankful for the scripture because it gets overlooked. And I know it's hard to believe that men like this would overlook this passage, but they have. Peter, writing to believers scattered abroad, Jewish believers, says to the chosen at this place and that place, chosen by the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge of God. Let me give you a good example. You're reading, let's say you're reading my book, Divine Appointments. And, and I talk to you and I say, hey, Mike, how you like the book? Oh, good. I'm, I'm in chapter five where, you know, where, you know, you're talking about the woman that you ran to. I'm like, oh, keep going. It gets better. I know where you're going. I wrote the book. Hmm. But you're reading it on your own. And see, here's my point. Um, I don't have a problem with divine election. I don't have a problem with any of that. But how did God do it? That's the key. He did it. By foreknowledge. In other words, he knew, he knew that I was going to make a decision to follow Christ. He did it without impeding my free moral will. I think it's Galatians 5.13, I think, talks about that, about our free moral agency. That's where we get that from, that God created us like it, with free moral agency because if he didn't, then we're robots. He would have said to Adam, jump. Adam would have said, how high? Eve, turn, left or right, God. Uh, and also, he would have a bride that he chose and that didn't choose him. <laughs> I mean, that, it's just not there in Scripture. It's, it's a reach. It's a bridge too far. And so what you have is you have Peter, like, really blowing the whole curtain open and saying, wait a minute. He did it by his foreknowledge. He knew that we would make this decision. Uh, I think John 1, 11, 12 says this, to as many as received him, to them did he give the right to become the children of God, even to them who were, you know, born in his name. You mean we got a, we had a chance to respond to this gospel? Yes. Now, I know that drives Calvinists nuts. They're going to, they're screaming right now if they're watching this podcast. But that's what the, argue with the scripture. Don't argue with me. We, we get to respond. God put the gospel out and we have that prevenient grace that, that Wesley talks about, the preceding grace that's there to respond. But if, if it's not us who responds, then we're robots. So yes, we are dead in sin, as Sproul says, Sproul says. But what does that mean? That doesn't mean that we can't respond. It just simply means that if we stay in that condition, I mean, what did Jesus mean when he said to the guy whose father died, and he said, I want to, I want to, follow you, Lord, but I, I got to bury my father. He said, let the dead bury the dead. 
How could the dead bury the dead? Same, see, context, same circumstance. So how does it, if, if God knows that I'm going to do these things, yeah. how does that, how, how is that free will? How is it free will if I, I if if he already knows I'm gonna do this stuff or what's gonna and who's gonna who's going to eventually be saved, who's going to do these things, who's going to sin at this time, how does that how do we reconcile that with but I still have a choice? How how do we how do we bring that? Well, because I, because God clearly limits Himself. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. One of the Psalms, actually, talk, trying to remember what Psalm it is, actually says that. Um, you know, God clearly limits Himself and gives us this certain. You know, how much free will do we have? Is it fifty percent? I don't know, but there is clearly enough free will for us to act of our own volition. That's what I see in Scripture. Like, like in other words, I am serving. One of the beautiful things about serving the Lord, and some people may understand it, some may not, is that I could get up right now and say, you know what, I'm kind of done with all this. I mean, what are we witnessing right now? The deconstruction of faith all over the place. All these Christian, so-called Christian musicians and all this kind of stuff deconstructing their faith. That's free will. I mean, I got up this morning and brushed my teeth. With, with Crest toothpaste. Uh, at no point did God tell me to buy Crest. Or he never told me to buy this shirt. I like the shirt. You know, that's free will. That We have a certain amount. I think where we're going to get in trouble is if we try to define. Like I remember a pastor saying, um, we are, you know, in the world today, it's 75% God's sovereignty and 25% man's free will. I said, could you show me a scripture on that? Because I don't see that. I don't know what it is, but I know it's enough to allow us to respond to the gospel. And I don't know that there's an answer beyond that, to be very honest with you. Now, what would you, what would you say to this? Um, because I heard a, I heard a preacher once say, um, when it comes to that whole predestination thing, that, that, um, that Calvinist view that so basically if I, if I summarize it correctly, let me know if I'm wrong. The Calvinist view is God already decided who's going to be saved and who's not. But, and it wasn't us who decided, so we didn't really have that free will to decide. Right. He already decided who is That's or not. Correct. Okay, so we're correct on that. Now, I heard somebody say, and they point to that scripture of, for whom he predestined, he foreknew, or, or what was the Again, scripture? to be conformed to the image of his son. Nowhere right. in that passage does it say anything about salvation. So in this in this verse that says he, who, for whom he predestined the you know he he predestined people, um, this pastor said that uh, he believes that God predestined all of us to come to the knowledge of Him and be saved by grace. Um, so is he a universalist? He believes everybody's going to be saved. No, that's not what he's saying. Okay. He's saying that um, he he believes that he. He predestined us all to be saved. Okay. So he he doesn't want anybody to not be saved. Yeah, I, I would agree. So with he that. has he doesn't decide like you're not gonna be yeah. you are. Yeah, he so wanted us like, all to come. He wants, Absolutely. He he so his so when we're talking about that scripture of who he predestined, yeah. 
we're all predestined yeah. for it. You ever notice it says that we're the whoever's name was blotted out of the book of life? Meaning right. your name was in there to begin with. There's that's another a, fact to prove what I'm saying. That's a good point. Yeah. And it's a, that's why I like yeah. this kind of conversation. Well, here's another passage, Romans 5.5. 5. For at the right time, Christ came and died for the ungodly. So let's just ask a question. Who are the ungodly? Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right. So if Christ came to die for the ungodly, according to Romans 3.23, who are who's the ungodly? Everyone. Interesting. I mean, this is, it's not as, I, the, the thing, and you, you hit on it, and I was watching you when you were talking, with conviction you said this, and I get it. How did Sproul and all these guys miss this? Right. I, I'm with you on that. I don't understand how they don't get this. Like, it really surprises me, which is why in my book, Hyper-Calvinism Revisited, I had to find something, there was something else, and I do believe there's something else. I believe there's, an, a, a, honestly, a spirit of anger there. I, this is why these guys tend to preach angry, and I believe I'm totally justified in that and so, saying that and can prove that. One of the things is that I see happen a lot of times with various teachings. The popular topic is works versus grace, right? Yep. Works versus grace. But there's like this pendulum that swings back and forth. It's like, oh, it's all grace, no works. Or then it goes back like, well, it's works. If, you're, if you believe in works, you don't believe in grace. Right. And it's like this pendulum that swings back and forth. And so my question is, I, I've had this conversation um, uh, arguing on Facebook like I should never do. Um, <laughs> and it was like, um, it was during an election or something like that when they said, like, you know, God did not will for this to happen. And I, and I, I have a problem with that. God's not up there like, oh, I, well, I, I hope he makes the right decision today. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, I hope he does this. Be an open like, theist. He's not worried an, about what we're yeah, doing. You'd be an open theist if you felt that way. So um, so it's it's difficult to say, like, um, God is not up there, like, you know, watching, kind of like hoping and, you know, just right. wishing that I would do the right thing each day. It's like he already knows what I'm going to do. That's right. And so it's it's in his will that if I do something bad, so it, it's hard to say this, but you it's not his will that I do bad things, right. but it's his will that I have the choice to do the bad things. Yes. And, and here, okay, so this gets into even, now this is really going to go, we're going to go real deep here. There's a book by Alvin Plantinga, who was a tremendous um, uh, teacher at Notre Dame. He wrote a book called God, Free Will, and Evil. And uh, the gist of the book is this. The only way, I can, and I'm, I'm struggling to try to put this into words myself, but I, I, it resonates such with my heart and with Scripture. Only in a world like this could we appreciate the world to come. It had to be this way. That's why we're here. There had to be planes falling out of the sky. There had to be drunk drivers. There had to be child molesters. There had no one wants that. God never wanted that, and and you know we have all these we you know we have all these atheist poster boys: Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. But boy, one thing they never want to talk about is Genesis chapter three. They never want to talk about that because they because 
they can't talk about it because it answers why we have those things. And we have those things because God told us no, and we said yes. And when we said yes, we told Satan, here's the deed of planet Earth. Put your name on it. And then Romans tells us, I think Romans 6 tells us, all creation is out of whack. Like God never meant for, for you know, uh, lake effect snow to fall and fall and fall and traffic accidents to happen or tsunamis to come. Like all, all these disasters are supposed to tell us something's not right here. Something's not right. And yet people are, you know, because we're in that Deuteronomy 6 place of, I got enough money in the bank, I got... It's like when I go out door to door, right? When I go to apartments, people are wide open. When I start knocking on single-family homes, it gets a little tougher. Why do you think that is? Mm -hmm. is, that the, is that the comfort level, you think? You got it. And who do you think has a little bit more money in the bank? <laughs> and, you, and can I tell you something? The nicer the house, you... And I, I look... I've been knocking on doors since 1981, so I know what I'm talking about here. The nicer the house, the harder the reception of the gospel. That's a that's a that's an interesting topic to discuss because sometimes we um, it's more difficult to talk to people when they're in a state of comfort. Everything's good. Absolutely, we we got it all figured out already. We we don't have anything to worry yep. about. Um, I knocked on the door the other day. A lady said, excuse me, I'm good. I said, I said, can I ask you something? She goes, yeah. I go, can, can I actually tell you something? She goes, yeah. I go, if we were good, I wouldn't be here right now. I'd be home tending my garden. <laughs> Have a good day. So it's so difficult to, it's, they're not as receptive, but at some level, I, I personally have felt like there's also not, Maybe it's maybe it's kind of like picking the low hanging fruit, but at some level, there's also not a a big push to reach out to the to the wealthy people and things like yeah. that because because I don't know if like in in Christianity it's it's more difficult to it it's a little easier to go ask a homeless person right. you know you you know you need help can I pray for you stuff like yeah. that than to go talk to some you know, some CEO and do the same thing. Right. Something that there's a little, it's a little more of a difficulty. It is. And then it's also, I feel like a little more praiseworthy uh, when we, when we can be seen kind of like reaching out to people in more need. Yes. And, and it's interesting that you brought that up just because that's something that I, I kind of um, struggle with intellectually thinking about this topic where we're, we get caught up in, only reaching out to people we deem that they yeah. need it, they need, they have a need. Yeah. Which is why we need to be reaching out to everyone. I, I, you know, I am not intimidated. I don't care if the guy, I, yeah. you know, it, I, it doesn't make, I remember one of my deacons in, up in Virginia, and he, he meant well when he said this, but he was like, hey, so, I guess this guy was a multimillionaire and he came to our service. He's like, you need to, you need to talk to him. Like, this guy could drop a half a million in our account I looked at him. I said, "You know, don't you know me better than that? I'll shake his hand like I do everybody else's on the way out, and that's all I'm going to do. And that's all I did. And I don't think he dropped a half a million in. I don't think, I, but I will not. Like James talks about that. In fact, Romans two eleven says, you know, for with God there is no partiality. Thank God. He doesn't care what your social status is. He, that guy's going to stand just like I'm going to stand before the Lord. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't matter. 
And so, and I'm thankful for that. And, and as long as we think that way, you know, the, I think part of the problem is when we get people who come and give money, we start treating them better. We start, well, why don't you guys sit up here in the front? Why? I, yeah. I don't play that game. In fact, I can't play that game. The scripture tells me not to do that. It's almost better in that, in a case like what you just shared, it's better just not to know anything about yes, it. Yes, it is. <laughs> that's, that's, that's why I, I stay far away from the books. I don't want to, you know, you know, I don't want to know what's going on. Keep my name. You know, I, I just don't want to know what's going on. There was one more thing that I wanted to bring up about this whole thing is if there's this, so there's the Calvinistic approach yes. of, you know, Every raindrop, God is basically forcing it down to the earth. And I'm I'm over-exaggerating there. So everything, he's micromanaging every little thing that happens here. And then the other, the opposite way is like, you know, you know, we're just like running wild and he's like just trying to rein us in or something. It's like, you know. I I once had a Calvinist say to me, oh, you're Armenian, I'm Wesleyan Armenian. He goes, oh, you're, you're, you're Arminian. Yeah, he goes, oh, so you're the people who believe you can save yourselves. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay. Yeah. So, but there's a, I, I, so back to that conversation that I was having, like um, the ill-advised discussion online, the, he came to this point where he was telling me that, you know, that God is not fully in control. And I'm, I mean, I, I take exception to that personally, but I, w- I want to bring in your perspective because um, maybe it's more of a, a semantics or something like that. And but it, it could be because that's, you know, look, I, look, again, take, take a mother who loses her son and you go ahead and tell her that God's in control and she'll throw you out of your house. Okay. I made that mistake as a young minister. Okay. In my book, in chapter 6, it's entitled, Does God Always Get What He Wants? The answer is no. Right. In other words, God desires all men to be saved. Do you, th- have, do you think all men are saved? No. No. Clear. In <laughs> fact, I think most men are where Jesus said in John 7, 13, Enter into life by the narrow gate. Few will find it. And then the wide and broad rod, and many will be that enter in. Most people are headed into eternity the wrong way. That's a problem. Or, or, well, they're certainly headed out of this life the wrong way. I'll say that. So God doesn't always get what he wants. So you have to be careful when you say God is in control of everything. Because, again, I think God limits himself. He clearly stepped back on some things. Um, and then what do we do with this scripture? Now, if you really want to throw a wild card into a Calvinistic theology, try this scripture emphasize. Ecclesiastes 9 and 11. Uh, the writer says, "For the, I've seen that the race is not to the swift nor to the strong. In other words, um, just think of the United States hockey team playing the Russian hockey team in 1980. On paper, that was an impossibility. America can't win, but they had to play the game. And America won four to three, mm. right? Many people call that the greatest sports upset in all history, right? Ecclesiastes 9, 11 says, for time and chance come to us all. What does that mean? Does that mean that somebody could leave their house at 10 after 9 in the morning, 
and there's a drunk driver who's going to come by that intersection at 9.13, and they're going to be right in the middle of that intersection when he comes by. I don't know how to really say too much about that other than there are clearly, when you got five or six billion people on the planet and all this stuff going on, there, not that God doesn't know, but he clearly allows it. I mean, how do we handle a, a child being molested? I actually had a mother say to me, where was your Jesus when that happened? Oh. And what do you do with I, that? I mean, what do you do with that? How can you answer exactly. that? Exactly. Like, so when people say God is in control, I, I say be careful with that statement. Like, like ultimately, is he in control? Yes. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But in the same way that he gave us this limit of free will, whatever, see, I don't know what that limit is, but I do know this. When you have free will, there's one thing that you have, sin. And when you have sin, you have that drunk driver going down the road. When you have sin, you have child molesters in church trying to pick out kids. When you have sin, you have murder. You have all this kind of plotting. You have all this kind of evil. And, and that's the problem. But then that gets into the Al, you know, Alvin Plantinga book and the idea that the only way we can appreciate the life to come is to go through this. And so, I, you know, I, I don't want to portray to anybody. I have the answers to all things. I don't. But I do know that there is a limit of free will, and I do know that sin is the abuse of that free will, and it's rampant in our world today. And that's why I believe these things happen. And God, yes, he, you know, he's not the blind watchmaker that Richard Dawkins says he is because he does intervene. I mean, look, there have been three times in my life where I know I shouldn't have survived what happened. God definitely intervened. And it tells me that he, every time that happened, I figured, okay, he's not done with me yet. You know, now with others, I, you know, I, I, I wish I could explain all that, those things. And I can't. And I don't try to do that either. Uh, you're just going to get yourself in trouble when you do that. But I do know God is sovereign. And I do know, ultimately, somewhere, somehow, he is working for the good in those situations somehow. And again, I would tell people, don't judge them now, judge them later. You know, some people, I know people who have been abused and because they were abused, now minister to other people in that area in an incredible way that they could never have done it. Look at people who are divorced, you know. I, I Unfortunately, I went through that. You know, I did, I, it was a divorce I didn't want, but I went through. But, you know, the doctor will tell you that if you break your arm or any bone and they set it correctly, when it fuses, it's stronger than it was before. How could I, how can my wife and I help others if, if you haven't been through it? I mean, you could, but we could relate even more so now. Does that make sense? And sure. so that's, those are, plat, those people who go through those things have a platform that you and I will never have. And, and I want to say that what Satan meant for evil, God will mean for the good. And he will turn that around on the devil. And he always does. You know, it was Friday, but Sunday was coming, you know. So God has a lot of Friday situations, but Sunday's coming. And he uses them. So we, we tend to judge what happened. But I'm like, hang on. Let's see what God does with that person before you go pointing the finger and saying. And, and I know many people. I mean, what do we do with Johnny Erickson Tata? Right? Paralyzed from the neck down. I don't know if you know her story. Yeah. Incredible story. Who said, I would rather be where I'm at now, knowing Christ, than to be walking around out there and prancing around and dancing and not knowing him. How do you, 
How do you put that into, that's mind boggling. But that's what she said, and that's what she believes. Well, this, I really appreciate your perspective on this because um, it's heavy. I, I, it's really heavy. yeah. We we went pretty deep on <laughs> yeah. some some topics. Um, yeah. So I know we're definitely going to have to have a follow up to this conversation yeah. at Any, some anytime. point. No, but before we close it out, I also want to give you a platform to say, um, what would be a message you want to tell so the listeners or or young men who are trying to to learn how to better serve the Lord or yeah. or kind of like starting that walk of faith. So what yeah. would be your, your strongest message to those those people? Right. Well I you know one thing I do want as I finish with that, I do want to say too that I, I you know I know I've said a lot of things here and I don't want to pretend that I have all the answers to that. I just know this. You know, the Bible says to be diligent, to study the word, to show yourself approved of God. And I believe that I would rather stand and look at Jesus in the face and say, on something I was wrong, and I'm sure I'm wrong in some things, but on something I was wrong, I'd rather look at Jesus and go, you know I believe that with all my heart, according to what I read and my study, than to sit there and say I didn't do anything or that I just sat back. And so I want to encourage people, if you study God's word, he will speak to you. He will give you, he, I believe, truth. I, he will show you his word. You, you, and truth doesn't mean you're going to have every last thing down right, because on the, on, the, on, on the fundamentals of the faith, you and I agree. If we talked about the non-negotiables, you and I are completely on the same page, and that's what matters. So I would say to, 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 to folks watching in in that place, is to just, look, there's an old adage, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Pick, please, pick up a Bible. Start with the Gospel of John. You know, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the big picture gospel. It's the, it's the, it's the snapshot where Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the portraits. You get more details. But John kind of covers everything. Read John. Then go back and read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Read those four books for yourself. Read them slowly. Read a chapter and think about them. And then see where you're at after you read those four books. Because I can't see how anybody could read those four books and not come away. And, and I mean, even Jesus' biggest detractors said, if the world, if people lived according to the way Jesus would be, this world would be completely different. You know, Gandhi once, and of course Gandhi would say this because he was under colonial rule. So I get it. But he said, you know, I, I, I love Jesus, but not your followers, you know. But, but, you know, even he was, like, taken away. And most people agree w with this statement that Jesus is probably the greatest model. I, I'll, I'll close with this. A friend of mine once said to me, oh, what if you find out this was all bunk, everything was where? I said, okay, let's play devil's advocate. I'll play devil's advocate with you for a minute. Let's say it's all bunk. I looked at him and said, would you agree that Jesus is arguably the greatest model this world's ever seen? He said, absolutely. I looked him in the eye and said, then why would I regret for one second devoting my life to the best example that we've ever seen? I have no regrets. That's what I would say. <laughs> that's an that's a awesome way to close us out. I, I really appreciate your testimony and, um, and your your vast knowledge of these topics. Um, and again, we're going to have to go 
uh, in some more depth on some of these Lord topics. Well, we'll see you again. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, if some people are listening, they'll they'll chime in with some ideas on what they want to hear more about, or if yeah. they have any questions, they can pose those, and yeah. we can talk about that next time. Yeah, I would and like I, to just say that all my books are available under Pastor Al Stewart on Amazon. Pastor Al Stewart. Yep, and they can find uh, him on Amazon. Yes. And so definitely do that. And um, I'll put some links in the description as well so they you. Can, you guys can find those. Um, these are awesome. Uh, again, really awesome discussion today. Thank, thank you. you, Pastor Al. I'm honored to um, be here. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. And uh, thank you guys for listening in today. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, listen to the Men of True Worth podcast with a man of true worth right here, Pastor Al. And uh, if you made it this far, go ahead and like, subscribe, comment. Uh, let us know if you got any questions. And then, uh, yeah, we will see you guys next time. Goodbye. Thank you, Pastor Al. Thank you.